0: Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I am your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to introduce an excellent book called The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. The Logic of Failure was published in 1997. I first read about it on a blog called The Social Pathologist probably 10 years ago. Maybe not quite ten years ago, maybe eight years ago. The premise of the logic of failure is fairly straightforward. The author is a researcher based in Germany who studies the long-term impact of human decision-making. A quote from the introduction of the book gives a good idea of the topic. He says, Human planning and decision-making can go awry if we do not pay enough attention to possible side effects and long-term repercussions. If we apply corrective measures too aggressively or too timidly, or if we ignore premises we should have considered. This is a fascinating book, and it is at once enlightening and convicting. It is enlightening because it gives many examples of how other people make serious mistakes with sometimes disastrous consequences. It is convicting because as you read through it, you cannot help but realize you are one of those people. Dorner opens the book by relating an interesting story about how a city in Germany decided the solution to the volume of traffic in the downtown area was to lower the speed limit and install speed bumps. The problems they were trying to solve was both the volume of traffic and the subsequent pollution. The unintended consequence of the plan was it made shopping in this downtown area unpleasant, and it also made it a longer process instead of decreasing pollution pollution was increased, and in a short period of time, shoppers discovered a shopping area in a neighboring town that was more convenient. The result was downtown businesses that were flourishing were soon on the point of going bankrupt, and tax revenues sank dramatically. It is an interesting story, but that is not the end of it. From there, the author relates how the visiting physicist and economist who were very confident that these were the kinds of mistakes that other people make. What happened next relates to my comment about the text being convicting. Quoting from the text, the author says, Our initial conversation was a general one about the failings of human thought and action, and implicit in it, of course, was the arrogant belief that such failings are always to be found in other people. He says that the mood of the two visitors deteriorated significantly, after they spent a couple of hours on a computer-simulated program that was designed and run by his department at the University of Bamberg in Germany. The particular simulation in question was that of a Moros tribe in the Sahel region of Africa. The simulation allowed them to make complex and long-reaching decisions to address the issues facing the tribe in the simulation. The task was to create better living conditions, The challenges were a high level of infant mortality and overall low life expectancy. In the simulation, their economy was also decimated by repeated famines, a type of fly that ravaged their cattle, preventing any significant increase in herd size. From what I gather reading the text, the possibilities within the simulation are fairly limitless. The economist and the physicist participating in the simulation were given time to gather information, study maps, ask questions consider possibilities, reject one set of plans, and finally reach decisions that they entered into the computer. According to the author, in short order the two co-workers were arguing with each other. He says that as the computer calculated the simulation and plotted it out over a 20-year period, the living conditions of the Morrison improved at first, but rapidly declined. I will bullet point what the results were. Please keep in mind, we are discussing a simulation, not a historical event. The population of the Moral Tribe doubled, overall mortality and infant mortality dropped sharply thanks to healthcare improvements. Initially, the size of the herd increased due to suppression of the biting flies that harassed the cattle. Drilling deep wells also allowed the increase of pasture lands which contributed to the increase in herd size. All of these were good outcomes of the initial planning. Here is what went wrong in the simulation. Overgrazing led to the cattle tearing up the grass. This resulted in the herd decreasing to almost nothing, as there was not enough grassland for them to feed on. Another problem that is significant, the healthcare system put in place had a positive impact on overall mortality, and child mortality in particular but no birth control measures or education was provided to the population. The commentary that follows this example is very interesting. The author is not critical of the two participants. He emphasizes that they were well-intentioned, and while they were not experts in developing countries, they began the task feeling adequately informed. Quoting from the text, he says, They solved immediate problems but did not think about the new problems that solving the old problems would create. He goes on to explain that fundamentally, people are not distressed by failing to see very subtle points that require specialized knowledge. What gets exposed in his simulations, however, is cause and effect relationships that are simple and in hindsight that are obvious. He emphasizes that people are distressed when they miss the obvious. Dorner goes on to relate this simulation to an actual event that took place in the Akavango Delta. He says the simple plan outlined by scientists was to repress the biting flies in the region and then replace the wildlife with cattle. Initially, he says this went well, but soon other herders moved into the region and the result was overgrazing. Quoting from the text, he says, The modern world is made up of innumerable interrelated subsystems and we need to think in terms of these interrelations. From this point, he goes into a discussion about human decision-making that may be a little dated. Essentially, he argues that until the modern era, it was easier for people to live in the present because their decisions did not have such wide-ranging impact. I do not think I agree with this, at least as it is presented. I can accept that the scale changes with a larger population, and it is possible that when this book was written, it reflected the information he had available but I think history shows us that people have always had an issue with seeing how their actions would have a cascade effect. Even having some hesitation about some statements he makes, it is evident that he was very immersed in this subject and very aware of other authors that work with and commentate on the subject. He goes into some detail about some of the theories that may have been offered as to why, essentially, people make decisions that are well-intentioned and may see short-term success, but ultimately have undesirable long-term consequences. Most of these competing theories seem to either suggest that humans have not adapted to our current mode of living, or that in one way or another we do not use all our brains. He rejects these theories, and the commentary in this section is really interesting. Quoting from the text, he says, The theories advanced are grandiose and run the gamut from genetic to evolutionary to culturally determined. Summarizing some of his thoughts, one point of view is that humans have prehistoric brains unsuitable to industrial times. Another is that humans are overly visual and therefore have a difficulty grasping problems that cannot be visualized. This does not cover all of the competing theories he discusses, but it shapes a decent overview for his next points. From here, he discusses how some authors go beyond complaining about the human condition and offer what he calls sweeping cures. Most of the ones he discusses seem to focus on teaching people supposed new ways of thinking. Other solutions to these problems, he says, focus on what he calls facile theories about the human brain. And thus, we have our word of the day. Facile means shadow or simplistic. Especially of a theory or argument, facile means appearing neat and comprehensive only by ignoring the true complexities of an issue. Getting back to the text, some of these facile theories include the idea that as humans, we only use 10% of our brains, or that our brains can be neatly divided into different sections, and that what we as a species need to do is learn to either develop or rely on some of these different sections and minimize others. He makes a few comments on this, but the most succinct one is this. He says, nowhere in nature does a creature run around on three legs and drag along a fourth, perfectly functional but unused leg. Quoting from the text, our brains function the way they function and not otherwise, end quote. A couple of thoughts come to mind, and this seems a good place to share them. Throughout human history, there has been a tendency to analyze the habits and traits of successful people and discuss how we can apply what we identify as the successful traits into our own lives. I think it is an objective truth that we can benefit by learning from the experiences of others, and I will follow that up by saying that introspection into our own lives, our successes and failures can have value. However, there are some important qualifiers. The first qualifier relates directly to the subject of this book. Put simply, the decisions we make often have cascade effects that can be difficult to predict. When trying to extrapolate details about an event we were not involved in, we have to understand that if we do not know the background story, we will not be working with all the information. This happens a great deal more than many people realize. I will provide a quick example. Several years ago, I worked in a gym that always had televisions on. One day, the unbiased and truthful media excuse me, I just bit my tongue, reported a story of a police officer who arrested a young male and slammed him against the hood of a patrol car. The media looped the video of the incident and played it several times while the unbiased and benevolent reporters provided unbiased and benevolent commentary. The view the audience was expected to adopt was that the arresting officer had acted in a violent and authoritarian way. Now, it is possible that he may have, but I am going to present to you the idea that sometimes, perhaps most of the time, what people do not tell us is more important than the information they share. In this example, no mention was made of why the arrest took place. Not one word was said about it. All the media commented on was the action in the video. This is the backstory. Or perhaps it should have been the main story, but all the media wanted was the audience to see a police officer roughly handling a young man. I pointed this out to my co worker who was watching this with me. Did the young man assault a child or an elderly person? Do you expect an officer to arrive on the scene where something brutal has taken place and not have any emotional reaction at all? It is fine to say you expect law enforcement to be professional, but we also need them to be human. In any event, I feel that if the cause of the arrest had been a trivial one, the media would have mentioned that. Quote, youth arrested for jaywalking, thrown on car, end quote, or something similar. Be cautious of drawing broad conclusions when you do not know the backstory. The second thing, different personalities and traits have different uses and strengths. This is important because sometimes a successful person will get analyzed and their traits or at least the traits that the person conducting the analysis approves of or identifies with will get promoted as being qualities and traits we all need to adopt. I could write an entire book on this subject, and maybe someday I will. For now, understand this you have traits that are perfect for certain situations. You know other people who have different traits that are perfect for other situations. Sometimes, in a group of people, Different traits are needed for different phases of the situation. In a military unit, you might have a scout whose purpose is to scout ahead of the larger party, selecting a safe path and avoiding detection. In that same group, you may have a medic who provides a critical function when there is an injury but is of no use to the scout in day-to-day work. In any team sport, you have different positions that serve different roles. This might shock you. But on a professional level, if you have an athlete who has spent their entire life learning to play a specific position, and they have to transition to a different position, they might not be good at it. I've had this conversation with a number of athletes, and for some of them, it has been career-ending. Different people have different strengths. When businesses or communities learn to identify and leverage these strengths, it is better for everyone. The third thing is, do what is appropriate at the time. Just because a specific strategy or approach worked out really well for either you or someone you have heard about in a given situation, does not mean you will get a 100% success rate with the same strategy in a different setting. There are many historical examples of this. Avoid the tendency to fixate on one approach and try to apply it to all situations. Now, returning to our text, here is a follow-up quote. He says, Our brains are not fundamentally flawed. We have simply developed bad habits. He goes on to say, When we fail to solve a problem, we fail because we tend to make a small mistake here, a small mistake there, and these mistakes add up. Here we have forgotten to make our goal specific enough. There is a lot of interesting information throughout the rest of this chapter. I would select a few things to quote as we wrap up today's episode. His discussion leads to some thoughts about intentions, and the view held by some that a person's intentions might be more important than the outcome of those intentions. He cautions against this, and what he says is worth quoting. He says, It is far from clear whether good intentions plus stupidity, or evil intentions plus intelligence, have wrought more harm in the world, end of quote. We could discuss this for days. Actually, I think a lot of people are discussing this on a daily basis, especially after the last two to three years. The next thing, he says, feels like a good place to end today's episode. It is not the end of the chapter, but there is so much here it is hard not to just read the chapter line by line. So I will share two more quotes and then conclude today's episode. He goes on to say, People with good intentions usually have few qualms about pursuing their goals. I'm going to say that again, because it is really worth thinking about. I'm also going to caution you, it is tempting to let statements like this occupy a space where we think, other people do so and so. Part of what you should get from this is recognizing when you see this in others, but also, for your own self-actualization guarding against this tendency in your day-to-day life. So that quote, again, is, People with good intentions usually have few qualms about pursuing their goals. He ends the introduction with a statement that I really like. He says, We need only apply the ample power of our minds to understanding and then breaking the logic of failure. I think that puts us in a good place for today. This concludes today's episode of The Literate Caveman. This has been the introduction to The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our next episode, we will continue our review of this fascinating text. Thank you for listening, and go read a book.